B. B is a more accurate answer. Um, and, and the answer in this case, thinking about it later, was that a better answer would have been is that I'm not nervous this morning about preaching, but I'm humbled. And um, I'm humbled because of something that Josh mentioned that really, I think, um, for in some good ways and in some, some sad ways, uh, distinguishes this church from many other churches that are out there. Um, I'm humbled because um, preaching in this church is held in very high regard. We, we, we regard and revere the preaching of the word as being a very important and um, critically important thing in our lives. Um, I'm humbled as well because um, biblically accurate preaching in our day and age is, is actually pretty rare. I don't know if you've traveled around much and visited friends or relatives and, and gone to church when you're somewhere else. And what you find is you might expect, A, because you're used to certain types of preaching here, and then you go somewhere else and you're expecting to have a meal from the Word of God, and instead you get like potato chips, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's not the same thing there. Um, accurate preaching um, changes our lives. Um, biblically accurate preaching is indeed rare. Uh, a while ago, a few years ago, there was a term that came up called food desert. The idea basically being there's parts of the city where you can live and there's a lack of health food stores or supermarkets. Basically, all you've got there are 7-Elevens and, and uh, quick stops on the corner. Um, and I, I believe in, in, a, in a similar way, basically, that applies to our spiritual lives as well, too. We live, I think, in this day and age, unfortunately, um, in, in a, uh, a spiritual food desert. And in the same way that basically certain parts of our city may lack supermarkets that have good food or health food stores that lack good food. We also have a lack of churches that actually have uh, good spiritual food. And this is actually even more amazing when you think about the fact that this is like totally the information age, right? You've got a cell phone in your pocket or your kids are playing video games on it right now. And probably in your hands, in your pocket, in their hands is more information than anybody's ever had at their disposal before. Yet, in spite of this, or maybe perhaps because of that, um, our, we've got a, we live in an area of a, of a desert, a spiritual food desert, and we're not really digging into God's word in its, in its depths. So good preaching is, is important because it changes our life. Good preaching is important because it's a rare, it's a rare thing. If you've been going here to Veritas for a while, You've heard Eric um, say several things. One thing that he says that he might be known for is right thinking makes right living. Exactly. Right thinking makes right living. And right thinking, basically, I would argue and continue on from that, from that thought that basically right thinking is rooted in the word of God, in the truths that are in God's word. And, and it's important. God's word is important. Good preaching is important because it changes our lives, because our lives are... Our good living is a result of the fruit of um, good, uh, good, what, what is it? Good thinking leads to good living. Good thinking is based on God's word. God's word changes our thinking. Therefore, we live better, right? It's all dovetailed together. So with that introduction in place, with all of that said, I want to say that I am perhaps a little bit nervous, but I'm also humbly, humbly glad, as uh, Josh said this morning, in humility. I'm humbly glad to be here to preach and to teach and to apply God's word to my life and to your lives this morning, um, all ideally for God's glory, and we know it ends up in our good as well too, right? Let's, uh, let's start this morning with uh, a word of prayer to our God. Dear God, I would um, pray this morning that you would enable me 
to use the gifts granted um, as apportioned by you and your wisdom. God, I would pray for all of us here, Lord, that you enable all of us to accurately understand your word, that, Lord, we would be convicted by your spirit of any unscriptural expectations that are in our minds, that, God, that if we have those unscriptural expectations, God, that we would have, God, soft hearts, that our hearts would be as fallow, receptive soils to the seed of your truth, that, God, that we would be encouraged as we see what you have done in the past, as we understand what you're doing currently in this day and age, and, God, with also what you plan to do in the future, and that as we understand these things, God, that we might have our hope restored. So, Lord, this morning we worship and praise you as we more fully understand you through your word this morning. We pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're going to be looking at um, some verses from the book of Matthew this morning. Uh, We looked before at some verses in Matthew back in, I believe it was March. We're going to be looking at some verses in Matthew this morning um, and from Matthew chapter 13. And uh, Matthew is an important book in the Bible. I don't know if you've run across any kind of survey of the Gospels, but Matthew is distinguished in a lot of commentators' minds because it was believed to have been the first or maybe the second book written, but is specifically seen as being the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Matthew was written with a Jewish audience in mind, um, basically with the idea being to point out to those Jews that actually this Jesus wasn't just any person, that this Jesus actually was the prophesied Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah for the kingdom of Israel. And so it acts as a bridge. It actually connects the Old Testament and the New Testament and makes it into one book that is in your hands right now. Um, we're looking this morning at the parable of the sower, as I said, and it's going to, uh, it's from Matthew 13, and it actually is the first of six parables in, the, in Matthew 13, and all these parables basically, at a large extent, if you were to group them all together, they could be summarized as talking about different aspects of the kingdom of God. We're going to be looking at the first of six parables, so we're just going to get a little bit of a foretaste of the kingdom of God, and there's a lot more there, and um, you'll probably have questions afterwards. Well, you said this, where does this lead? And I'll be covering that in, um, God willing, um, some some future uh, uh, sermons together with you guys. Um, I prayed this morning for understanding for uh, for three reasons. I prayed for understanding this morning because we're going to need it. Um, I prayed for understanding this morning because God's word, and as we'll see later on here this morning, God's word says we require Uh, his work in our hearts to have understanding. And finally, I prayed for uh, understanding this morning because we're looking into a parable this morning. Um, Parables are a bit difficult. Parables aren't like the TV news. Parables aren't like Newsweek. Parables aren't like the sack beat. Parables are symbolic. Parables are more like poetry. Parables um, would say... A is similar to B, but um, maybe in a more cryptic fashion. Um, And because we're looking at symbolic language in parables, it's actually uh, easy to misinterpret the parables and end up with a a false interpretation, right? So we need to approach um, any kind of uh, exhortation, exhortation, um, exegesis 
of parables with care, right? We've got to proceed very carefully. We've got to keep the bigger extent, the bigger picture of Scripture in mind, the lessons that are there, and interpret these parables in light of and in harmony with the rest of what we understand Scripture to really talk about. Parables are not easy to understand. And so because of these facts, um, for those of you that are taking notes, um, and for those of you that are not taking notes, I'm going to let you know where we're going. I, I've heard from some people that I have a habit of going down rabbit trails, and maybe you, maybe you think that I'm lost, and I, I, I'm, I'm giving you the outline in advance so you, that you'll know that, that we're not lost. We've got a definite direction we're going, so, so, don't, so don't worry. Um, we're going to be looking at three chunks of text this morning, three particular areas. We're looking at Jesus, the unexpected king. Unexpected king? We're looking at Jesus's unexpected kingdom. And we'll be looking at basically with those two thoughts in mind, the unexpected king, the unexpected kingdom. We're going to be looking at if we ourselves, similar to the Jews of the first century, hold similar mistaken expectations regarding Jesus, the king and the coming of the Messiah. So again, looking at the unexpected king, the unexpected kingdom. And um, wrapping up, looking at unexpected expectations. Um, the unexpected king, let me just give you a little bit of a foretaste of where we're going. Jesus, the unexpected king. We're looking at a, a recap of John the Baptist teaching from last time. And specifically, we're going to be looking at John, the Apostle John, Apostle John the Baptist John, um, and his mistaken beliefs that reflect those of the first century Jews. Looking at the unexpected kingdom, or the teaching from uh, Matthew chapter 13, Parable of the Soils. We're going to be looking at Jesus' corrective teaching to John the Baptist regarding what John said. So we've got John saying A, we're saying, hey, Jesus is saying, John, it's not A, it's B. And then we're looking at if we have those same mistaken expectations in our life. So let me provide a brief recap of... um, John the Baptist, and what we looked at, um, it was months ago, right? Probably six months ago. Um, John the Baptist, as you remember, he was a forerunner of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And he was, at this point in time, unfortunately sitting in prison. And he had been thrown there by Herod Antipas, the uh, evil, wicked ruler of Galilee. Um, John was confused about Jesus. As he sat in prison, he was confused. John was so confused that... um, as he sat in prison, he had a number of disciples that, he'd follow, that were following John that he baptized in the wilderness. And John sent them to go several miles north of where he was imprisoned to ask Jesus a question. And they asked Jesus the following question. And then this, this betrays um, John's confusion about Jesus and who he was. And again, this is, this is John the Baptist who came as a forerunner to Christ. And the question was, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? Um, you, you know, it, it, it amazes me if you just think about, imagine he maybe sent five or six or seven guys to go talk to Jesus. And, um, and they had this question to, to ask the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the creator of all things. And I, I bet they were kind of like, no, you go, no, you go, no, you go. Because you can imagine the audacity and the, the, the courage it would take to ask uh, Jesus that question. Because I'm sure they knew who he was, but they asked him that question. And if you remember how Jesus replied to that question, right, his answer, his answer was, do not the deaf hear, do not the blind receive their sight. 
We're not lepers cleansed. We're not the dead raised, right? Jesus answered with scripture from Isaiah about how actually all these prophecies had been fulfilled and actually exceeded predicting his coming. Um, And so that was Jesus's way to kind of uh, not so much shut them down, but as to educate them that scripture says, you believe A, B, and C? Scripture says these have been fulfilled already. Um, so Jesus is, uh, what was the gap between John's belief and Jesus's teaching, right? We saw that basically there was a gap between the two. And I think at a summary level, without repeating my entire last sermon and spending three, three hours here together, really, John expected, and we'll, we'll flesh this out a bit more, but John expected a season of harvest. Um, John expected immediate judgment. John expected um, immediate uh, judgment of, of the wicked and reward for the righteous. Um, Jesus um, taught John um, and the others in his parable um, that there's a, there's a season of sowing, that a season of sowing precedes harvest. John wanted to skip to the harvest um, and, and uh, bypass the season of sowing. Jesus talked about healing and was teaching and making disciples. And Jesus also displayed delayed reward and judgment. And so at, in a nutshell, basically, John kind of expected the first coming of Christ would look like we currently expect the second coming of Christ. We expect when Christ comes again, boom, that's it, Right. The sky is rolled up like a shade. We, um, something happens. These miraculous things happen. The end comes. The, the righteous are rewarded. The wicked are judged, right? Boom, boom, boom. The wheat separated from the chaff. The chaff is into the fire. Judgment of the wicked happens, and the wheat is brought into the barn, and the righteous are rewarded, right? Um, Jesus' act of healing, preaching, and teaching pointed to something different, something much different. Um, John saw... Jesus' first coming as we see Jesus' second coming. John and the first century Jews basically had expectations regarding Jesus' coming um, the first time that were incorrect, and we'll look at that right now. So that, that introduction in place, let's uh, look now finally at the parable of the sower, and then we'll look after that at Jesus' interpretation of that parable. So you'll find the parable of the sower from Matthew 13 in, on page 530 of your Bible with that really, really, really teeny print um, in the seat in front of you. Or if you've got a larger print Bible, you can follow along. Matthew 13, 1 to 9 reads as follows. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered around him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. 
So this is a pretty straightforward parable, a pretty straightforward story, right? Back in those days, um, it kind of was a food desert. You didn't have Rayleigh's or Bel Air or Safeway or anything like that. You didn't have supermarkets. A lot of the food that the families ate was basically grown by themselves in their own fields. So they would strap on a seed bag over their shoulder, around their waist. They'd fill that seed bag up with grain, and they'd go out to their little plot in the backyard or in the field, basically, and they'd thrust their hand in that bag of seed, and as they walked along, they'd toss it and thrust their hand in that bag of seed, and they'd toss it. And the seed would scatter everywhere. Um, The seed would scatter on hard ground. It would scatter on soft ground. It would scatter everywhere. Some of that ground was hard. If you've ever noticed, um, if you look at, if we have lawn areas left anymore, anywhere, uh, universities at least, where people walk a lot, if there's grass, it's dead. That grass is dead because the soil is compacted. It's hard. Nothing, well, nothing, uh, nothing but weeds. It's really difficult for seeds to germinate in hard, compacted soil. So some of that seed was thrown under the hard, compacted soil, and it sat there. It wasn't able to penetrate that hard, so the birds came down, gobbled it up, and, and flew away. Other seed fell in shallow soil. So for those of you that are gardeners here or vegetable gardeners, right, if you, if, you, if you plant your vegetables, you plant them in raised beds, right? You do that because the raised bed, the soil warms up more quickly, the seeds germinate more quickly, and you've got, you've got faster growth. If you've got weeds, seed, weeds close to, if you've got weed seed close to the edge of your paving, it germinates more quickly. That warm temperature causes the seed to germinate quickly. Shallow soil, the seeds germinate quickly. However, shallow soil, the other problem is, is that the, shallow, the soil is shallow. There's not a whole lot of water reserved in that soil. So as the plants grow, they get going. They get going good because it's nice and warm. And then, right, the heat comes. The pressure comes, right? It's July. It's August. It's September. Is it ever going to be cool, right? They've got a similar climate in the Mediterranean as, as we have here. So these, these plants, these seeds germinated quickly. They got up there, they, and they began to get close to actually setting seed, to uh, um, yielding fruit. They got cut off and they died. Other seed, um, we got, we got, okay. Other seed fell in good soil and that soil was rich and fertile, but there's a lot of weed seed in there and those weed seeds basically grew up and choked out the seeds. And then finally, other seed fell on, on good soil. So we've got how many kinds of soil here? Four? Yeah. How many total? Four? Well, so um, some commentators surprised me. They said you've got six. We've got three non-fruit-producing soils and three good-producing good soils because those good soils actually produce at varying levels, right? Is it 30, 60, and 100-fold, right? So you've actually got six soils. Of those six soils, three failed. Three failed to produce fruit. Three failed to actually go to, the, to reach the point of harvest, and three actually succeeded. So... That's the, that's the high-level summary, but, but okay, so what, right? Jesus, why are you telling me about how to grow crops, right? What, there must be something else going on here, right? Is this, is this an analogy? Is it a metaphor? Is, there a, is this a parable? What could this really mean? Well, fortunately, um, Jesus helps us a little bit um, with his interpretation, and his interpretation is in verses 18 to 23. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, and doesn't understand it, this is the hard soil, right? The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That was the soil that was sown along the path. 
Asherot was sown on rocky ground, right, the shallow soil. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it. Yet he has no root in himself, but it endures for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it, and it proves unfruitful. And finally, the good soil. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. So let's look at some of this symbology a little bit. Um, I, I think the first thing that jumps out at me is um, there was a, a change here, right? In the original sharing of the parable, Jesus was talking about soils. In Jesus' interpretation, he's talking about the soils actually being people, right? Um, so hold that in mind as we go through some of the other symbols, um, symbolic language. Um, did Jesus define the sower? Not really, right? So that, that, that's, that's an identifying uh, mark of parables is that it's not necessarily always a one-to-one analogy. Uh, not every detail has some kind of hidden symbolic meaning, right? You don't have to get out your secret decoder ring and dig and dig and dig. Ideally, there should be something totally visible at a surface level. And so don't go overly crazy in trying to uh, come up with some kind of hidden meaning for every little uh, uh, symbol that's in here. But we are told that basically um, the seed is the word of God, right? So, so who, who spreads, who sows the word of God, right? Jesus, that's the answer. For Sunday school, it's always Jesus, um, or in, it could be God, or it could also be you and I doing evangelism, right? right? So the sower is undefined, but the seed is the, clean, is the word of God. We know that to be the fact. And um, let's look at the seed now. Um, how many kinds of seed were there? One kind of seed, right? One kind of seed. So there's no difference in the seed. We can't account... Uh, for the different levels of productivity in these soils based on uh, special seed being sown. It wasn't like some seed was old, some seed was new. This is all the same seed. But really, and I think the, the, the key thing in all this, in this parable, what it's really driving home is, and most of the language in this parable is focused on what? Search of the nest, soils. Good answer, Katie. I'm going to throw you a candy. Okay. <laughs> the different soils are indeed different types of people. The hard soil, right, never received the seed. The shallow and the weedy soil received some seed, but there was problems that cropped up. They didn't go to fruit. Um, and you had three good kinds of seed that had different levels of productivity. And um, note also, and, and we'll get into this in a bit more, and this is a bit more cryptic, but um, this, is, this is farming, this is sowing. Um, when you go to the market and you buy food, it's instantaneous, right? Boom, you're done. If you're going to grow vegetables, if you want to grow tomatoes, when do you buy your seed, right? You buy your seed early in the year, right? You're planning, you're planning ahead. And you plant, those, you plant that seed, you plant those small plants three months in advance, right? Growing crops requires time. Jesus is, is hinting at either boldly or, or more subtly 
that, that we're dealing with a situation that requires time. It's not instantaneous. So in sum, be a good soil, right? Very good, very good. Um, but there's more to that. And I, I think I, think, um, I found helpful this uh, uh, description, this exegesis, this uh, summary by D.A. Carson regarding this section of Scripture. And so I think you'll find it too. And let me read this here. The general point of this parable is that whenever the message of the kingdom is proclaimed, it receives a varied reception. Some people are so hard that the message never penetrates. Other people are so shallow that although they respond joyfully, the kingdom message never really takes root in their life. And at the first whiff of opposition, they disavow their allegiance as quickly and as thoughtlessly as they originally professed it. Still others, other soils, other people, receive the message, but competing interests and concerns, cares of the world, choke it to death. But some seed falls on good, receptive ground, eventually producing fruit in various yields. These people hear the word and they understand it. Although the degree of fruitfulness differs from person to person, believer to believer, even the least productive soil, provided there is some reduction, is called good by Jesus. Thank you, D.A. Carson. So I think, I think that really helps drive home for me the different person. Yeah, I mean, you could actually do one of these personality type tests, right? What kind of soil are you, right? right? Each, but, but hopefully... And, and, and some, some churches, actually, that's where they kind of leave this, right? It's the question then becomes, what kind of soil are you? And you want to be the good soil. You don't want to be the bad soil, right? Right? And so be a good soil. But, and, and, and that actually, because Jesus left his interpretation open-ended, that could be an application of this. And, I, and I, I'm kind of poking fun at that. But that, I believe we should ask those questions of ourselves, right? We should even though it appears to me like the three soils that failed were not saved, were not regenerate, um, I think we should as believers um, uh, ask those questions of ourselves and, and, and test our belief, basically. But with all that said, um, how could we summarize all this um, accurately, right? And, and I would say there's a number of bullet points that, that I can take home from this um, to summarize what Jesus was, was teaching here, and in some way, too, how Jesus was correcting John the Baptist's um, teachings. Well, not, John wasn't wrong, but he had some wrong ideas, and I, and I think Jesus was responding to those when he taught this parable here. I think we can see and agree that John the Baptist proclaimed, prophesied the coming of Jesus the King. That's pretty self-evident. Um, John the Baptist saw that the coming of the end was imminent, right? Um, as we saw last time, John saw the, the end being very eminent. Um, John said something like, this is he of whom it was spoken by the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John also said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, it's eminent. Um, John didn't say it's 2,000 plus years off. John saw the, the uh, kingdom being imminent. Um, but again, John was confused because he saw Jesus here, you know, here John sitting in prison, right? Uh, he, he actually rightly called out um, King Herod 
on his bad behavior. And King Herod was a Jew, so that was actually John the Baptist's place to call him out on his sin. But his, his, his reward for that good deed was being thrown into prison. So, so John was confused, and he, w- he expected Jesus, I'm sure, to say, you know what? You know, out of jail, free card, here you go, you're out of jail. Herod, you're into jail, um, and uh, boom, uh, I'm now the ruler of Israel, and boom, the Romans are out of here, right? And, and John didn't see that. John didn't see that. And, and we're going to see in a moment what actually more, um, well, actually, let me, let, me put, let me drive that home right now, actually, is that, again, as I mentioned before, Jesus was teaching a delayed kingdom. Jesus was teaching, basically, a coming of the kingdom that was not as we see the second coming, but as he saw the first coming. And so there was a, a delay in that. So in the parable of the soil and the sowers, Jesus drove home the point that the coming kingdom, the time of judgment, the time of harvest, that that time was going to be delayed and that first was going to come an age of sowing and later an age of harvest, right? If you've got harvest, what happens before? Sowing, right? You've got to have sowing. You can't skip the sowing. And it was the unexpected nature of this two-stage, two-step kingdom that Jesus was teaching in this parable. So, this is pretty profound stuff, Greg. Um, I liked it easier when you're just talking about, you know, my good soil or a bad soil, right? Eh, that's a little bit easier. Um, so do we, this is, this is the, we're switching into third gear here. We're looking at our Christian mistaken expectations, right? Do we have similar misunderstandings as John the Baptist and the first century Jews did um, regarding Jesus the King and his kingdom. And I've got, I've got a few questions here and to kind of highlight, to kind of prompt you, to probe you to see if, if, if indeed you think, if you believe, and I believe in some uh, ideas regarding um, God's king and Jesus' kingdom that are uh, not totally in alignment with Scripture. Maybe just a little bit off, but that's enough to kind of affect um, right thinking makes right living, right? And so to think and live rightly, we need to make sure we, we have an accurate understanding of God's word. Um, so Christian, got a couple questions for you. Then I've got a comment or two for non-believers. Um, Christian, do you believe, can you accept that the kingdom of God entered human history in a small but significant way with the first coming of Christ? Um, so do you believe that actually when Jesus Christ came that something significant actually happened? And, and, and you, can, you can, you know, I, yeah, I, I think that. I believe that's true, Greg. But then you think about it from another angle. Um, so if that's true, and if this parable is true, then basically we saw there was varying levels of productivity in the soil, right? Do you think Jesus was trying to teach John the Baptist and the others that they should expect to see non-productive soils, uh, people that basically wouldn't accept and re- receive and accept the gospel in this day and age. We're living in that kingdom age. And I believe this parable is telling us you're living in an age now, Jesus is predicting this, you're going to be living in an age before the next age, the final age, where you're going to have and you're going to see and observe differing levels of, of acceptance. Some people are not... Some people are going to be so hard-hearted that the gospel is going to bounce off them like a tennis ball off of a concrete wall, right? They're going to be, and you've seen those people. You know some of those people. Some people are going to quickly accept the gospel and, 
And um, you're going to be so happy because you shared with your brother and all of a sudden he said all the right things and he smiled, but then he fell away, right? Or others are going to accept the gospel and, and they're just going to get consumed by, and it's not, it's not hard to get consumed by the things of the world, right? How many emails do I get? Oh, your latest order regarding fertilizer for the yard has arrived, right? I mean, there's so many distractions in our life. It's really easy to get distracted from the really, really, really important things, the things of the kingdom, um, so my, 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 uh, I think for me, the thermometer, the indicator is, um, I might believe that Jesus predicted a time of mixed acceptance of his message, um, but then how do, I, how do I react to the unbelief that I see in culture around, around me right now, right? We, how many days do you get up and you, uh, maybe the first thing you do is, is read the news, Right? And you read about some new legislation or something else, and or maybe something on Twitter. You think I think they actually put those on there to drive you crazy, right? And it's always some kind of thing that just seems like so outlandish and so outrageous that instantly you, you just see red, right? And usually, well, if I see red, it's just because something that actually doubts the gospel or pokes fun at the, at the gospel or makes fun of God or says God doesn't exist, right? But if that's my reaction... What's the root of what's the root of that? Um, it makes me want to go out and you know, like, do something bad, kill them, yell at them, go out and protest on the street, right? But what, what, what? Why do I have that root reaction? Is that root reaction one of, of of compassion and love? Well, not really, but really, it's because I'm doubting what God said here. I'm doubting that Jesus said there's going to be people that don't believe the gospel in this age. And I'm not saying it's okay. We're called to preach the gospel. We're called to share the gospel. We're called to share the good news. But when rejection comes, when mockery comes, when persecution comes, you know what? It's okay. It's okay. It should be water off, water off a duck's back, right? It's okay because Jesus predicted this, right? It's okay. And so understanding the gospel here, understanding what Jesus was saying about this kingdom should, um, should calm us down. And if you're not calm... I think I would encourage you to examine your heart to see if you fully understand God's, God's sovereignty in this way as well. Um, covered that one. Covered that one. Ah. Okay, let's hit this one. Because uh, I've got way too many here, and, and I'll never finish before like dinner. Um, Christian, do you believe, can you accept the coming of the kingdom that requires time. And I, I hinted at this pretty straightforwardly before. Planting a garden requires time. And Jesus is saying in this case, the coming of the kingdom is not going to be instantaneous. The coming of the kingdom is going to take time. And so we are going to see, and I wouldn't have expected it. I mean, I think that John the Baptist was totally correct. For those of you that are connecting the dots, right? Greg, you said John said it was going to be imminent. It's been over 2,000 years. How is that imminent, right? Well, that's a good question, and we'll get into that the next time I share. But, but, but it's, God is working, and this kingdom requires time to reach fruition. And it might take 2,000 years. It might take 3,000 years. But the reason that God is doing this, most likely, is God is sowing for a harvest, right? The longer God delays the final judgment, the more people that are going to come into the kingdom. So 
I'm glad he waited for me to be born, and I bet you're glad you waited for he to, you to be born as well too, right? So praise God for that. Um, and finally, I want to I want to close up my question section here before I get into the sovereignty of God section. Um, uh, believers, are you sobered up by the apostate soils, right? How close did those soils get? The seed in the thin soil and the seed in the weedy soil. How close did those seeds get to full growth and germination before they died? How close can we get to, how much can we act like we really are believers, we really are Christians, and actually not really be there, to actually be apostate? I don't believe you can lose your salvation. I believe scripture teaches that, but I believe we can actually have a false sense of assurance and we can maybe think we're saved and we really aren't. So I would encourage each of us to examine our hearts closely. Um, if you're a believer, I think that the, the reality, the possibility of being apostate um, could ca- should cause us ever more to seek after Jesus and to fall on our face, fall on our face before him. So, has the reality of the sovereignty of God changed your heart and changed your life? I'm going to, there were some verses from Matthew 13 here that drive home some hard to swallow, hard to understand, hard to really accept with a happy face um, about the sovereignty of God. In verses 13 to 15, read as follows. Um, Actually, let me set this up a little bit. Not everybody got it, right? And Jesus spoke to them in parables, but Jesus spoke to them in parables so they wouldn't get it. What, what, what's, what's Jesus doing here, right? This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understanding. Never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And with their eyes, their eyes, they have closed, lest they should see and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Their eyes, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. They didn't really want to understand the truth. They didn't want to understand the truth. They had reached a point where God let them go. God stopped pursuing them and gave them over to their heart's desire. Non-Christians, this should cause you alarm. If you're not a believer this morning, you sh- this, this verse, these verses should frighten you because God may delay judgment, but it doesn't mean his delayed judgment is approval of your sin. You can reach a point of rebellion where God will give up pursuing you and give you over to your sin as you, as you want. Non-believer, today is the day of salvation. Return, repent, and turn to Jesus today. So Christians, I'm going to close with this. How should we respond to these things? I would say we should respond with, to these verses in two ways. One with gratitude, and secondly, with gratitude, graciousness towards others. Christians, gratitude should fill your heart because God made you a good soil. He could have made you a bad soil. 
He could have come back before you were born, but he allowed you to be born. And if you're a believer here today, it's because of his work in your heart. God's, your gratitude for God's sovereign election, that gratitude should color and affect and flow out of every pore of your skin. Um, and Christians as well, too, that graciousness towards God, your, that gratitude towards God, um, that understanding of God's grace for you, that should give you grace towards others. God has saved you for no ability of your own. You should thank him. God has saved you by his grace. And that should soften your heart. That should break your heart. That should cause you to show grace towards the unfruitful soils, right? And when they're acting like unfruitful soils, water off a duck's back, right? You ought to be okay with that because Jesus predicted that. And you should be, and I should be simply doing what Jesus has called us to do, sowing that seed and um, waiting to see which seed Jesus germinates and brings to fruit and which seed um, does not germinate and reach fruit. Because of all this, Christians, we have peace. Despite levels of varying acceptance of God's word, we have peace. Despite some or many not receiving the gospel, we have peace. Despite delayed judgment of the wicked, despite the apparent triumph of wickedness in our culture, we have peace. We have peace right now because Jesus, the omnipotent, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he rules and reigns right now in heaven and also on earth and in the United States and in California and in Sacramento, California. Let's uh, close out in prayer. Dear God, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you also for your spirit that's opened our eyes and our ears, showing us graciously our need for salvation. God, I pray this morning that um, the truth shared would cause the unsaved to hunger and thirst for righteousness. As well, I pray that the truth shared this morning will cause my brothers and sisters in Christ to examine their beliefs, to examine our beliefs, and to make the time required necessary to examine the scriptures, to examine how our beliefs compare with the truth of your word. We thank you for this time together as a church body, and we pray that you would help us, that this would help us point to you, God, reflect you more accurately this week in our homes, at school, at our jobs, and wherever else we go, Lord. We pray all these things and thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.